Faithful awakened in the pleasant arbor, feeling the first rays of sun warming his face. His night had been so restful and the morning was so lovely that it wasn't until he'd sat up and rubbed the sand from his eyes that it dawned on him. He had fallen asleep in a boat. How had he gotten back here? He thought again of the old man who had attacked and bludgeoned him, of the prince who had rescued him, tended his wounds, and forgiven his sins once again. Faithful stood and stretched, his body unbroken by the savage attack, and thanked his god for the miraculous rescue and the mysterious respite. Today, he would make great progress on the pilgrim road, he determined. If he met that old man again, he would stand his ground, holding fast to the truth he'd received at the place of deliverance. If he met Adam the First again, well, he cracked his knuckles. Or perhaps he would see neither of those rogues, nor any other enemy, along the road today. Maybe this would be the day that he would catch up to that other pilgrim Goodwill had spoken of, the one who had passed through the wicket gate just a little before him. The thought pleased him. Not only would that be safer, enabling a system of watches through the night and better defense against attack, but it would also provide him with companionship along the road. And as much as it pained him to admit it, Faithful was a bit lonely. And so he ate the last of his food, half a stale biscuit and a bit of turnip, and set off at a determined pace. When the pilgrim had cleared the arbor and begun to climb hill difficulty once again. A thin, pale fellow emerged from the stand of trees beside the garden. His name was Shame, and as he watched the pilgrim disappear up the hill, a wicked smile spread slowly across his ghoulish face. Hi, and Silver, and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come, John Bunyan's Timeless Christian Allegory, as told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 9. Respite The night before, Watchful had invited Christian to follow him along a flagstone path that wound its way up toward the front of the towering edifice. As they walked, the porter asked, Have you no baggage? None to speak of, no. That is good to hear. If you don't mind my asking, sir, whose house is this? It is called the Palace Beautiful, to those who know it. It was built by the Lord of the Hill ages ago, for the relief and security of pilgrims, if indeed you are one. I am. That is what I aim to find out, Watchful said. He gestured to a rough-cut wooden bench a stone's throw from the door of the palace and invited Christian to sit. Despite the hard edges, Christian was greatly relieved to put his whole weight on the seat and lean back. He'd been on his feet almost continuously since leaving the place of deliverance, walking, running, climbing, hiding, scrambling. He was exhausted and secretly resented the prospect of enduring a round of questions from this odd stranger. Tell me then, where have you come from and what is your destination? I am on my way from my hometown, a city called Destruction, to the Celestial City. The porter nodded approvingly. And uh, what is your name? My name is now Christian, but I was born Graceless. That was my, my legal name. Graceless? Truly? Who are your people? I come from the race of Japheth, whom God will persuade to dwell in the tents of Shem. Hmm. 
I'll be honest, good Christian, all that you have said is pleasing to me and to all those who dwell in this house, but I can't help but wonder, why are you arriving so late? The sun is set and darkness has fallen. Christian studied his feet. I would have been here sooner, but wretched man that I am, I slept in the arbor that stands on the hillside halfway up the hill. In fact, I slept a good portion of the day away. And what's worse, as I arose, I left my evidence behind, a foolish mistake which I did not realize until I'd reached the brow of the hill, at which point I had no choice but to go back for it, my heart broken and mind reeling. And yet, here I am. I may have arrived late in the day, but it's only by the grace of God that I arrive at all. Watchful put a hand on the pilgrim's shoulder and squeezed. All like sheep have gone astray, he said, but God has laid on our prince the iniquity of us all. I will call for one of the virgins of the house who will come down and talk with you, and if she is satisfied with your testimony, she'll bring you in to the rest of the family, according to the rules of the house. So watchful the porter rang a bell. A moment later, the door opened and a solemn-looking young woman came down to meet them. Christian scrambled to his feet. Why have you called? she asked. Watchful gestured at the visitor and said, My lady, this is Christian. He's on a journey from the city of destruction to Mount Zion, but being weary and benighted, he asked if he could lodge here tonight. The woman introduced herself as discretion, and after repeating the porter's questions and posing a few of her own, she finally asked, Why do you wish to lodge with us? My lady, Christian said, I am very weary. When this day began, I had not yet reached the wicked gate, and now I am exhausted, looking for any place to lay my head, but I desire to rest here, particularly all the more, now that I know this house was built by the Lord of the Hill for the aid of his pilgrims. Discretion smiled and said, Come with me, and I will introduce you to the others who dwell here. As they neared the door, Christian saw three more women waiting at the threshold. These are my sisters, said Discretion, Prudence, Piety, and Charity. Christian bowed his head and said, Grace and peace to you all. In the lamplight, he could see that all four of these women were not only beautiful, with a beauty that went far deeper than the outward appearance, but also had a purity and innocence about them. Not naivety, thought Christian, but the sort of innocence toward evil for which all pilgrims should strive. Come in, you blessed of the Lord, Charity said, leading Christian into an expansive parlor. I hope you're hungry. The smell of cooking meat and bread brought an audible roar from his stomach, but Christian said, I'm hungry indeed, but please do not trouble yourselves preparing anything on my account. Not at this hour. I would be content with a crust of bread if you have it. Nonsense, Charity said. Supper is nearly ready, but for now, let us sit and talk. <laughs> Supper? Do you always eat so late in the day? Not always, Discernment said. We've been waiting. For you. Christian sank into a comfortable chair near the fire, next to an oval gate-leg table, where a young man came in and set down a cup of tea and saucer. To warm your bones, good pilgrim, he said. Christian took a sip and marveled at the heavenly flavor, realizing that this was his first tea in recent memory. Well, tell us about your journey so far, Piety said, leaning forward in her seat. i tell you about my journey. Oh, I don't even know where to begin. Prudence laughed. 
How about at the beginning? <laughs> Tell us, what first motivated you to set out on the Pilgrim Road? Oh yes, Piety agreed, and leave nothing out. It is good for the souls of pilgrims to share such stories, and good for all of us to hear them. Christian thought for a moment and answered, I was driven out of my native land by a, a dreadful sound that was continually in my ears, and a crushing weight on my soul, a sense of unavoidable destruction that would follow me and drag me down to hell if I did not set out from that place. For some time, I had no idea where I should go to avoid it, but then by chance, or rather by providence, I came upon a man as I was weeping and wandering. This man, evangelist, directed me to the wicket gate, which I'm sure I would never have found on my own. From there, I followed the narrow way all the way here. Charity nodded. We've known that man for a very long time. He's a friend to all in this house. I trust he's been a great help to you, even after you set out on pilgrimage? Oh, indeed he has. And not only him, but uh, a man who called himself Help, which, now that I say it, seems a bit on the nose, but he could not have been more aptly named, for he pulled me out of the slough of despond. Then there was, of course, Mr. Goodwill at the gate, with whom I would have loved to spend more time in fellowship, but uh, he kind of hurried me along. And, of course, the interpreter who helped prepare me for this trip, I suspect in ways I have yet to comprehend. Oh, do tell us some of the wonders you saw in his house, Piety said. There were many. The two that have been most on my mind were this dreadful vision of a man in an iron cage who had sinned himself quite out of hope of God's mercy, the sight of which filled me with great caution and even fear. Then there was the sight of a great fire, a, a hopeful reminder that all the enemy's toil and mischief can never douse the work of Christ in a true pilgrim's heart. Beyond this, I saw many other things and encountered other people, but all of them combined are less than a shadow compared to the man I saw at the place of deliverance. I have been thinking of him continually ever since I left that place. It's as if the sight of him landed on my eyes at the top of the hill, but has been slowly impressing itself on my heart ever since. Who did you see there? A man hanging upon a tree, bleeding. It was the very sight of him that made my burden fall from my back. He gazed into the fire. I never saw such a thing before. And while I was gazing upon him, three shining ones appeared to me, pronounced my sins forgiven, stripped me of my filthy rags, and clothed me in this embroidered coat. One of them set his mark upon my forehead, and another gave me this. He retrieved the scroll from within his coat and held it up. May I see it? Piety asked. Christian hesitated only a moment before handing it to her. Piety examined it and passed it around to the others. Each held it gingerly and beheld it with reverence before returning it to the pilgrim. And since being delivered, discretion said, what have you experienced? He told them of simple sloth and presumption, of formalist and hypocrisy, of timorous and mistrust. You have done well, Prudence said, but do you not sometimes think of the country you left behind? Yes, but with shame and loathing. Truly, I would have expected to feel homesick by now, and sometimes I do, but not for the land I left. Rather, I am homesick for the place I am going. You never think back to the things you enjoyed in that city? I, I do, but always against my will. 
I think of the carnal delights that preoccupied us in that place, but those thoughts inevitably bring me around to grief and sorrow, and if I possessed absolute self-control, I would never think of these things again. I would vanquish them and banish them entirely. But God help me, there are still within me vestiges of my old self, thoughts, words, and deeds of the flesh. Piety nodded. Some pilgrims find there are seasons in which they have that victory. I can surely relate to that, Christian said. There are certain golden hours when I am free of these former things, but they are few and far between. Think, Piety said. Can you recall what prompts these golden hours? Christian rubbed his chin in thought. I suppose it's when I think of the man I saw on the cross. That will do it. And when I look upon my new coat, that will do it as well. Or when I look at the scroll I carry next to my heart and think of where I'm headed. And why is it that you long to reach Mount Zion? Prudence asked. Christian laughed. For for a hundred reasons. It is in that city that I hope to see the man who hung dead on the cross, whom I have seen in mere glimpses in the pleasant arbor and along the road, only there... At length, alive and reigning on a golden throne, surrounded by an emerald rainbow, before which are the the seven torches of fire and the twenty-four elders ever bowing down and worshipping him, there I hope to be rid of all the carnal thoughts and selfish desires that plague me. I'm weary of this inward sickness and, and long to be rid of it. In that city, there's no death." And there I will gather with ten thousand times ten thousand, myriads upon myriads, saints who have gone before me and and who will come after me. But mostly, mostly it's the first thing, to see my Lord. I love him because he first loved me. I loved him at first because he relieved me of my burden. But I love him more every hour simply because he is worthy of all love and honor and glory and power. And I long for the day when I join the company singing his praises, eternally crying, Holy, holy, holy. Charity dabbed her eyes with a lace handkerchief and asked, But Christian, don't you have a family? I do. I have a wife and four small boys. Piety asked, Why did you not bring them? Christian fought back the tears crowding his eyes and creeping up his throat. You have no idea how badly I wanted to, how earnestly I tried, but as much as I sought to convince them to come with me, they sought just as hard to persuade me to stay back. You must have told them of the danger of remaining behind. I did little else for a very long time. I warned them of the coming destruction of our city. I showed them in my book. I wept. I pled with them. But my wife was afraid of losing this world. And my children, of course, were preoccupied with the foolish delights of youth. They would not believe me. Even the youngest of them mocked me. Charity's voice was heavy with sympathy. I trust you prayed that God would bless your words to them. Of course, zealously. My wife and children are beyond precious to me. Prudence alone remained dispassionate. I suppose it was your own vain life that dampened the power of your words to persuade them. Really, sister, Charity scolded. Show some grace and kindness to our guest. No, she is right, Christian said. 
I cannot commend my life. I am well aware of my failings, although I was incredibly careful not to give my family, by my conduct, any reason to reject my words. But even when they saw this, they would tell me I was being too precise, foolishly denying myself things for their sakes, which they thought were all well and good. Even my great tenderness in sinning against my God somehow put them off pilgrimage all the more. Charity nodded. Cain hated his brother because his own deeds were evil, while his brothers were righteous. An older man, wearing a fine livery, entered the parlor, announced that supper was ready, and directed Christian to a room containing a water basin, pitcher, and towel, where he was able to wash up before the meal. While conversing with these like-minded people, his fatigue had lifted, along with his spirits, and hunger now dwarfed his desire to sleep. As he entered the dining room, Christian's jaw dropped. The feast laid out was like nothing he had ever seen. He doubted that the highest nobles of his homeland had ever even laid eyes on such a meal, let alone partaken of it. The smell of roasted meat, the finest of wine, and savory sauces mingled in the air. The servants directed Christian to a seat of honor and asked him to say grace. Gladly, he replied. Most gracious God and merciful Father, we beseech thee, sanctify these, your gifts, to our use. Make them healthful for our nourishment, and make us thankful for thy blessings. Through Christ our Lord and only Savior. Amen. Then they sat down to eat. Christian, the women he'd already met, and a dozen more members of their family, all happy to see Christian and receive him into their house. The food was rich and delicious, seeming to blend in with the conversation, which was the same. They spoke on just one topic, the Lord of the Hill, what he had done and where and why, how he had built this house with his own hands. As they continued to recount his exploits, it became clear to Christian that this Lord had been a great warrior, that he had entered into deadly combat with the greatest enemy of these people and had slain him. As they spoke of the wounds their lord had endured and the blood he shed, their love for him became almost palpable. In fact, it seemed that the more they spoke of him, the more they loved him. An old man named Steadfast, his face crisscrossed with battle scars and one eye covered over with a patch, raised his glass and declared, To the lord of the hill, who put the glory of grace into all he did, and did it all out of pure love for his people. Have any of you seen this lord? Christian asked. A hush befell the room for a moment, and then a boy of about fourteen said, I have. I spoke with him even after his death on the cross. As have I. Me too. And me. Well, Christian demanded, what did he say to you? That he is a lover of poor pilgrims such as you will find nowhere else on the face of the earth. Aye, Steadfast said. He said so with his own lips, and he'd have to be, to have stripped himself of his own glory as he did in order to rescue the poor and wretched, to make us princes, though by nature and birth we were beggars, to build us this house even while we chose to live on the dunghill. They all looked at each other in silence for a long time, tears standing in their eyes. And then Christian raised his glass again and said, To the Lord of the hill, the one who died, and behold, he is alive forevermore. When the meal was finished, a group of them invited Christian to retire to the drawing room with them.
There they continued to talk about their Lord and about each one's call to follow him. At one point, a sweet old woman named Gladness said to Christian, Well, young man, are you just going to keep talking about that book of yours, or are you going to read it for us? Christian took the jab happily, opened his book, and began to read. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Christian closed his book, and they again sat in silence for a few minutes. Finally, discretion said, It's very late, and I believe our guest arrived here already quite tired. I suggest we commit ourselves to the Lord for protection through the night and retire to our beds until morning. When they had prayed, a young man led Christian up a series of winding stairways lit by burning candles upon wall sconces, and finally to a spacious upper chamber whose windows opened toward the east. The servant told him the name of the chamber was Peace and bid him good night. Christian lay down on the soft feather bed, sinking slowly into it and reflecting on the goodness of his Lord. To think, the night before he'd slept all alone in the earth itself, burrowing into it like a lesser beast to avoid the judgment raining down from above, and now he laid his head on the softest pillow he'd ever known, thanking God for the many other kind pilgrims finding rest in this house. He fell asleep with a smile upon his face and woke to the sight of the most breathtaking sunrise he had ever seen. Rays of light shone up into the sky in all directions, cutting through the clouds. Shades of orange and pink and purple and gold all vied for the honor of announcing the new day's arrival. After praying and reading again from his scroll, Christian ventured back down to the dining room, where he found happy pilgrims filling their plates with eggs, bread, and cornmeal mush. Christian got in line and filled his own plate. His cup was filled with coffee. The great soberer recently arrived in their land from the east. It was delicious, invigorating, and gave Christian all the more occasion to thank and praise his God. As he began to express his great gratitude and now bid his new friends goodbye, they all began to object. You must not depart just yet, Piety said. You've only seen the house in the darkness. We would show you all the rarities of this place. I promise you, these will be a blessing and a boon to all your travels. Christian threw up his hands. Well, what can I say but lead the way? Charity, Piety, and a very quiet man named Teacher led him first into the study, or at least that's what they called it. To Christian, it appeared to be no less than the greatest library he had ever seen. The teacher found his tongue quickly when the documents and artifacts came out, and he showed Christian many records of the greatest antiquity. 
These proved the pedigree of the Lord of the Hill, showing him to be the only son of the Ancient of Days, having never been born, but rather eternally begotten. Christian sat in rapt attention as the annals of the Lord's great acts came out, one beautifully illuminated page at a time. Then there was the logbook filled with the names of many thousands he had taken into his service and placed in mansions that were impervious to the passing of time and the laws of entropy. Just as Christian was beginning to feel a bit tired and hungry, some members of the household brought in tea and a few delicacies, which they enjoyed together while discussing the exploits of some of the king's great servants, how they had subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the consuming fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were in all other ways made strong out of weakness and valiant out of fear, even turning to flight entire armies. Christian looked down at the butter sandwich in his hand. It would only hold him over to supper, but these tales of the Lord and his people would feed him for the rest of his pilgrimage. Faithful made it from the pleasant arbor to the top of the hill by noon. The blood was pumping and his desire grew to quicken his pace all the more and make this day more productive than any three days he'd ever known before. All the same, as he crested the hill, he had to stop and take in the sight of a palace sparkling in the noonday sun. He decided to take just a moment to have a look and renew his strength. He fixed his eyes on the highest spire and walked toward the palace, gawking. Then he froze in his tracks, gripped by an unyielding panic. Faithful stood perfectly still and looked down to his right and his left. He was standing between two massive lions, the sort of creatures he had only read about in books or spoken of in grave and frightful tones around the campfire. Both cats were massive, stretched out in the grass, but they were also asleep. The fear ebbed away as one of the cats rubbed at his eyes and rolled over, snoring loudly in the warm sun. Faithful chuckled to himself and carried on along the path to the place where a stone walk diverged from the narrow way leading up to the door of the palace. Near that intersection, a man stood, regarding Faithful with admiration. Sir, I have never seen any pilgrim walk between those lions with the, the calmness and courage that you have shown just now. Could I have your name? Faithful grinned. <laughs> I'm called Faithful, and it may be that I am just better at hiding my fear than those other pilgrims. I think you're being modest, which is another thing to commend. Sir, please do me the favor of joining us tonight for supper. I couldn't impose, Faithful said, but thank you very much for the invitation. It's no imposition at all, the porter said. This house exists for the relief and security of pilgrims. Faithful glanced up at the sun, as if to check whether it was still above his head. Again, sir, you are very kind, but I still have much of the day before me, and I've sort of challenged myself to cover as much ground as possible before the sun sets. I think I'll carry on, but certainly a blessing upon yourself and this house for your kind offer. He made to leave, but Watchful caught him by the shoulder and said, Good pilgrim, you would be wise to stop even for an hour before you descend this hill, and after it, descend further yet, into the Valley of Humiliation. It's just, I just have too much to do, Faithful said. You understand. 
The porter sighed. Then, reaching into the bag he carried across his shoulder, he pulled out a slice of bread and a hunk of cheese, which he wrapped in a loose cloth and handed to Faithful, along with a skin of wine. At least take my lunch, he said. Oh, I... I couldn't. I insist, Watchful said, then added with a wink, Take it or fight me. Faithful chuckled and accepted these gifts with his thanks. He took a few steps, then turned back. The Valley of Humiliation you say. The porter nodded. Is there some secret to surviving it that may only be obtained in that palace? No, that's not quite it. Keep your head up and your heart fixed on our lord, and you should pass through the valley without too much trouble. Godspeed, faithful. It was nearly dark by the time Christian and his new friends finished in the study. At the pilgrims' insistence, they had skipped nothing and skimmed nothing related to the Lord's great deeds on their behalf. They read about how willing he had been to receive into favor even those who had previously insulted him with slurs and blasphemies. They then dove into several other histories, both ancient and modern, together with prophecies and predictions of things sure to come, both to the dread and amazement of the Lord's enemies and to the comfort and solace of pilgrims. When they had come to the end of these, the teacher stood up on a stool and gazed out the small window. Well, he said, I had hoped we could take you to the heights today and show you the delectable mountains, but they are shrouded in darkness now. Perhaps tomorrow, before I leave, Christian said. Certainly. For now, I suggest we take some time to contemplate all that we've read before supper is served. Faithful continued his slow descent into the Valley of Humiliation as the sun set behind him. His one recurring thought was that he should have accepted that kind man's offer and gone inside to be fed, strengthened, and equipped for this leg of the journey. As it was, despite his best laid plans, Faithful had made very little progress during the remaining daylight. In fact, he could look back over his shoulder and see the place where he'd rested two hours ago. Upon entering the Valley of Humiliation, he'd found that every step required an intense act of the will, namely an act of submitting his will to the Lord's, and this caused him to make slow and indirect progress. He was also plagued with a sense that someone was following him, stalking him like a predator, biding his time. Faithful thought of Goodwill's consternation at the sight of a pilgrim approaching the gate all alone, rather than two by two or three by three, and he understood it all the more. Perhaps he would have found in that beautiful palace some other pilgrim, or, or even a band of pilgrims to which he could have joined himself. Two are better than one. They have a better reward for their toil. If one falls, the other can lift him. If two lie together, they keep warm, but... How can one keep warm alone? Faithful's mind was suddenly filled with the image of the woman wanton, tugging at his wrist, inviting him into her warm bed. I've been waiting for you, Faithful. She was all lace and soft skin and sultry words. A deep sense of shame welled up within him, and Faithful cried out for help against enemies, seen and unseen. The image of wanton dissolved, and in her place stood another woman modest and kind and good. Faithful had never met her, but somehow he knew her. Piety was her name. When she spoke, her voice was strong and sincere, free of any duplicity. 
Two are indeed better than one, she said. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. A threefold cord. Faithful thought of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, of God's omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, of the living creatures around the throne declaring Him thrice holy. The words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the woman was now saying. Just as Jonas was three days in the belly of the great fish, so I will be three days in the belly of the earth. Then I will rise. The woman faded into the falling night. What shall I say to these things? Faithful said. If God is for me, who can be against me? And with that, he spread his cloak on the ground and lay down upon it, falling into a shallow sleep. It was in the deadest part of the night that Faithful awoke with a start. The sense that he was being watched was reinforced by every pounding beat of his heart. He could hear the sound of someone or something out there breathing deeply, a roar building in its throat. The clink of scales working against one another echoed up through the valley. Faithful thought of the words of the kind porter at the palace. Just keep your head up and your heart fixed on the Lord, and you should pass through without too much trouble. The pilgrim stood, shook the drowsiness from his head, and cracked his neck, his eyes tracing the moon-tinged darkness around him, and ultimately falling upon a good-sized rock a few paces away. He picked it up and hefted it. One side was round and fit perfectly within his palm. The other came to a point, like an axe head. Faithful resolved to stand guard through the rest of the night. He may be only one pilgrim, but he would keep watch. And he wasn't exactly alone. Only fifty yards away, concealed in the thicket, the creature Apollyon watched and waited. He knit his dragon's brow in thought. Physically, this pilgrim was an impressive specimen, which usually meant that he would be soft spiritually, trusting in flesh and bone. For that reason, Apollyon had attended to let him sleep on the cold earth for an hour or so and then set upon him and tear him to pieces. But when he had extended his wings, intent on doing just that, the sound of his scales had awakened the pilgrim, and it was now clear that this man was more than he seemed. True, a single rock, a crude makeshift weapon, would be nothing against Apollyon, the great destroyer, less than nothing. But this man reminded him of someone else. Someone he'd underestimated and attacked long ago, only to be defeated and humiliated. It had taken him decades to fully recover from that defeat. And so Apollyon decided to wait this pilgrim out. Eventually, he would grow bored, grow tired, lie down and drift off again. From here, a few fiery darts could be launched to stun and injure him in his sleep, softening him for the final snuffing out. He smiled to himself. Then, with lightning speed, he thrust his talon out into the darkness and wrapped it around the throat of a gaunt, gray man, lifting him off the ground. The man kicked and sputtered, struggling for breath, the yellow glow of Apollyon's eyes illuminating the man's desperate face. The massive demon laughed. Shame? Is that you? Are you truly foolish enough to sneak up on me in the darkness? Shame tried to answer, but only succeeded in choking on his own words and spittle. Apollyon dumped him to the ground. Speak, he spat. 
My lord, I, I was just coming to ask you, are you planning to set upon this man tonight? Why do you ask? Do I report to you now? No, 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 of course not. It's just, I figured that if you were going to, you would have already done so, and... I will not attack while he is awake. This man has no real weapon, true, but he is formidable. He reminds me of young David who felled a champion of hell with one small stone. And if you'll notice, this man hefts a heavy rock. I, I came to tell you, Master, that... He swallowed hard. I can... I can take him for you. <laughs> Apollyon laughed louder than he intended and said, You... Yes, yes, Lord. Uh, I will let him go down, just a little deeper, into the Valley of Humiliation, and will use the setting to my advantage while I spring my trap. You remember how that same David fell himself, don't you? He was a great man, far stronger than this neophyte, and, and favored of the king, a king himself. And yet, after he sinned, I pulled him down into an undertow of shame, sucking him further and further into the miry pit. Sin, shame, sin, shame. Let me have a crack at this one. I will send my associate discontent to soften him up, and then I will go in for the kill. You have misread this one, shame. He does not tend toward hiding his sins. My spies tell me that he makes them known, even with blubbering tears. And then he gives glory to the god who forgives them. Just so. There are different types of shame, Lord Apollyon. I have been watching this pilgrim too, and I know precisely how to trap him. Besides, if I am not mistaken, another pilgrim comes this way in the morning. One who will be armed to the teeth and anxious to meet you in battle. Christian. Apollyon hissed. Yes. Very well. I will rest for battle. As for you, do not let this man out of your sight for one moment. Should he escape your grasp, you will pay in shrieks and agony. In the morning, Christian arose to another spectacular sunrise. He thanked the Lord for this place and these people as he gathered his things and prepared to depart. The members of the household seemed to be fasting this day, but knowing that Christian had a hard journey ahead of him, they brought him some bread and fruit preserves and more of that delicious brown beverage. Then piety, charity, and steadfast led him up almost to the top of the highest spire of the palace where a watchtower was set. Pointing out to the east, Charity said, Do you see that ridge there? Those are the delectable mountains. The mountain range was barely visible from here, the tops of the tallest peaks shrouded in mist. But they were beautiful to behold. Spread out before them was a colorful tapestry that Christian assumed to be vineyards, flowers, fruit of all sorts, springs and fountains. Magnificent, he said. They certainly are said Piety, but we show these things to you, not just to enthrall you, but to encourage you. You see, those mountains are closer to the celestial city than they are to where you stand right now. Christian thought on this. What is the name of that land? It is Emmanuel's land, Charity said. 
and when you arrive there, you will be able to see the gate of the Celestial City from its heights, as the shepherds who live there make it visible to you. I, I have to go, Christian said. I will make great progress today. He was feeling restless now, longing to think with each step how every footfall in the right direction would take him measurably closer to those mountains, and thus to the Celestial Gate. I, Steadfast said, you should be going. But first, one more very important stop. Where? Christian asked. The Armory. Faithful had dozed only a bit in the first purple light of day and now rose to his feet as the sun burst forth above the canopy of trees, bringing with it new mercies and fresh perspective. Despite his dearth of sleep, he felt all the more prepared to pass through the valley of humiliation and onto whatever lay beyond. As he set out, his feet were steady and his pace quick. He thanked his lord for protection during the night and asked him for guidance, courage, and wisdom for this day. They entered the armory from the south side of the palace, wishing the peace of Christ upon the armorer, who unlocked the gate and helped the ladies down the rock-hewn steps into a vast subterranean keep. Christian had been intent on spending as little time here as possible before resuming his travel, but such thoughts fled his mind as soon as he laid eyes on the collection of weapons and engines exhibited along the ornate near wall. One by one, the armorer showed him Moses' rod, which had become a serpent, drawn water from the rock and part of the Red Sea, the tent peg which mighty Jael had driven through Sisera's skull, and the mallet with which she had struck it, trumpets, lamps, and fragments of the jars that had obscured them the night that Gideon's tiny force wiped out a massive army of Midianites, the ox goad with which Shamgar slew six hundred Philistines, and the jawbone with which Samson killed a thousand. As they neared the corner, Christian saw the sling which David had used to kill Goliath and the giant's sword which King David had carried with him into battle, but even that huge weapon looked modest compared to the last one there on display, an enormous sword embedded into the earth itself at the far corner of the armory. What is that? Christian asked. The armorer smiled. That is the sword with which our Lord will kill the man of sin on the day that he shall rise up to the prey. But we are not just here to look, are we? He motioned for Christian to turn around, and when he did, he saw enough armor and weapons to outfit tens of thousands of soldiers for battle, all lined up and perfectly organized by peace and size. The armorer stood back and studied Christian's frame for a moment before issuing orders to the others to bring him particular pieces. When it was all piled at his feet, he began by helping Christian gird his loins with a thick leather belt. This is the belt of truth, he said. It will hold you fast and protect your vitals in battle. From it will hang your sword and any other weapon you carry. Next, they affixed a hard leather and metal shell over his chest. This is the breastplate of righteousness, Charity said. It will guard your heart and give you courage in facing the enemy. But look here. She pointed to a metallic emblem over the heart in the shape of a key. This is promise. It will help you never to forget the promises of God and may indeed save your life one day. 
Christian's shins were then fitted with greaves, followed by leather footwear. These shoes will never wear out, Steadfast said, indicating his own pair of the same. Never. They will bring you forward as you herald the gospel of peace. The armorer handed Christian a tall, rectangular shield curved in at the sides and said, The shield of faith will extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Steadfast pushed a helmet down onto the pilgrim's head a bit roughly. The helmet of salvation. Let it guard your mind from threats, both without and within. And now for your weapons, the armorer said. First and foremost, the sword of the spirit. He handed a sheathed sword to Steadfast, who affixed it to Christian's belt. And, of course, all prayer. He handed Piety the short javelin, which she attached to the pilgrim's back. That will do it, the armorer said. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, steadfast, immovable. Christian nodded solemnly and followed his new friends back out into the late morning sun, where he saw Prudence and Watchful waiting for him. Now that's a man ready for pilgrimage, the porter called out, drawing near. Look at you. Do you need any help, my friend? Not unless you want to accompany me the rest of the way. I'd better not leave my post, Watchful said. But there are many others on the Pilgrim Road, and your instinct is good. You should not be alone. In fact, a man passed by here less than a day ago. A man of great faith and good cheer. Perhaps you might catch up to him. Did he mention his name? He did. It was, uh, faithful. It was, it was faithful. I wish he'd stayed with us for a time. Christian laughed. Faithful? I know him. He was my near neighbor in destruction. In fact, until a year or two ago, we had been rather close friends. And you say he has just a, a one-day head start? I'm sure he's reached the bottom of the hill by now, but the Valley of Humiliation could be slow going for those who have no armor. I should think you can catch him if you set your mind to it. But be careful. As it was difficult coming up, it is dangerous going down. Well, good porter, said Christian, the Lord be with you and multiply your blessings for the kindness that you have shown me. He gestured at the others and at the palace itself, and that goes for all of you. May we accompany you to the foot of the hill? Charity asked. You'll get no argument from me. As they walked, they spoke of all Christian had seen and experienced at the Palace Beautiful. And when they reached the bottom of the hill, they all bid him Godspeed with a holy kiss. Prudence left him with a warning. Going into this valley, you are liable to lose your footing and slip. Do not tarry, but do not rush either. Then she handed Christian a loaf of bread, and Charity gave him a bottle of wine, and Piety a cluster of raisins, and after praying for Christian, they turned back and began to climb the hill toward the Palace Beautiful. Christian put the food into his bag and tied it shut again. As he fastened it to his back, he looked down at his new armor and weapons. He had no doubt that there were many potential dangers, snares, and pitfalls ahead, but as long as he wore this armor, he felt sure that no one would dare set upon him. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress. Make sure you don't miss a beat by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a moment to leave an honest review. 
The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, High and Silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Scripture quotations are the author's own translation or are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishing, used by permission, all rights reserved. Additional sound effects and music licensed from Pond5.com. High and silver. Good.